Hey, welcome back to part two. Hi guys. We're just gonna jump in. So we're talking about truth, the philosophical nature of truth. And so let's just, we just wanna touch on a little bit of where we are today. Um, and in the next episode, we're gonna dive much deeper into um, the pervasive worldview of the day that's um, being you know, propagated through many different um, avenues. So, um, but as like a general umbrella look at where we are, um, I would arguably say something like cultural relativism. Mm -hmm. You could say that in lots of ways, post-truth society, post-modernism, um, it claims that there's no universal truth, right? We hear a lot of talk about like, you do you, my truth is my truth, you know, um, nobody can speak into anyone else's truth because they have nothing that they can say about it because they're not in that person's experience. And some of that is true, but there's always um, some flaw happening there as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, but the thing is that saying that there is no universal truth is in and of itself a truth claim. So this statement makes a universal truth claim, which actually contradicts itself. Yeah. Um, it, Nancy Piercy calls this that the, the truth claim commits suicide, right? Um, and this isn't just a logic trick right? It's, it's actually real because yeah. if we're, we're putting forward a truth claim, that truth claim has to also support its itself, mm -hmm. right? So by saying there is no universal truth, that is a universal truth claim, yeah. which breaks itself down. Mm -hmm. um, Postmodernism, one way to look at it is if, if materialism reduces humans to the product of physical forces, postmodernism reduces them to products of social forces. Mm -hmm. So um, it's talking about how truth claims are actual social constructions, and it dissolves personal identity into group identity, more or less, which is what we're really seeing today, yeah. um, which fits into this dominant critical theory, critical mm -hmm. race theory, gender mm -hmm. theory. I mean, there's this sort of um, CRT, critical race theory, but it, it's, a, it's a bigger ideology, which we'll yeah. speak to another time of our day, but it basically says that um, humans are just determined, you know, our identity is in the groups that we belong to. Yeah, we're reducible to our groups. Yes. Yeah. Um, and this also implies that the human subject um, has no power to transcend the social or historical conditions that mm -hmm. they live in. Mm -hmm. um, Dallas Willard, um, who's a Christian philosopher, I would call him, says that postmodernism hardly leaves you a logical leg to stand on to oppose the spirit of the age, right? So if, if truth is a social construction, then we're, we're subject to that social construction. We cannot question it. Yeah. Um, another way to think of this is that um, truth becomes the group consensus of the age. Oh, yeah. um, it's what it's whatever the majority of people say is true, mm -hmm. um, which. But even that doesn't change what's actually true, but it becomes truth lowercase t yes. for right. any culture. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, so I want to go on to say here that um, you know, actually, oh, we already talked about this in the last episode. That's great. Mm. So, do you want to say anything more about where we are now? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's just, it's an interesting time to be alive. I think all of us would agree with that. It's a fascinating time to be alive. What we're seeing in terms of statistical um, data from people, <laughs> I'm being really general here, but the idea 
right now for me and the reason truth feels like it matters perhaps more than ever um, is because we see people dying while they live and like people are suffering but not like not like the suffering in other countries where we have we have more like we're we have everything in the West over here where we have the conveniences of progress and we have so much. And yet we are people, we are seeing people and experiencing people that we love and care about dying while they live. There is a, there's a depth and a, like a lostness and a gap, um, like a hunger for meaning and for purpose that, and there's a search for it. There's a hunger for it. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's my feeling, it's my personal feeling that I think that points to a gap for all of us in living in alignment with truth. And so I know that's like a really big claim for me to make, but I would just say that it, I want to test that idea that if, what if, like, what are we seeing in terms of if humans are living in alignment with objective reality, meaning that that which corresponds to reality as we actually experience it, how are those people faring right now? How are people, um, you know, just in sort of a comparative way, it's like, what's going on for people? How do we explain this, this sense of lostness, this widespread lostness and lack of meaning and lack of purpose that drives so many people to the end of themselves? And that is something that I know you have a lot of experience with in your particular career and, and um, sphere of influence there is that there is a, there's a real phenomena happening and while I don't have all the evidence to back that, I do think it is in part due to some sort of chasm between our lived experience and our actual grounding or lack thereof in truth. Yeah, beautiful. So um, as I said before, I'm a mental health therapist and I have been sitting with people in my office day after day after day for the last almost mm, 12 years. Yeah. And um, so... I, I tell my kids that um, I'm like the village secret keeper, <laughs> um, that I get to be the one that hears people's um, innermost reality, that yeah. they don't speak out loud often because it feels shameful, because it feels dark, because it feels hopeless, and they don't, yeah. they don't want to be a burden to other people. Um, but I get to hear those stories. Mm -hmm. um, and as such, um, you know, they're... I would argue, and some people would would counter this, and that's totally fine, and I actually love having these conversations, yeah, yeah, totally. um, that evil does exist. And that's a really big claim. But as a counselor, you know, I've heard stories um, that no one should ever have to hear, let alone actually experience. Yeah. Um, and I will not recount those stories here because I don't want to re-traumatize an entire audience of people. Um, but there, no one can convince me otherwise that evil doesn't exist. Mm. That's an impossibility for me at this point, given what I have heard, um, and the suffering, like the depth of suffering that I have witnessed for the last 12 years as a counselor is extreme. Yeah. It's extreme. Yeah. Um, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. Like beyond, if there was a word beyond heartbreaking, I would use that word. Mm. Um, and the thing is that the existence of evil, I mean, people, most people, I would say, agree that there is evil, even if they don't have a religious belief system to, to explain, explain evil. 
um, they would say, yes, there is a category of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also means that there has to be then a category of good or holy, right? Mm-hmm. The opposite of evil, yeah. the, the, the lack of evil entirely. So mm-hmm. what is that? Yeah. And I find that this um, idea of evil and suffering is either the thing that moves people away from God entirely, saying if there's a good God, then why, then this shouldn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. Or it's the thing that moves people towards God because it's the only source of hope in the face of evil. Um, And the thing I often talk about is that, you know, how um, if there isn't a God, this evil still exists. It's still here. Mm -hmm. And we're SOL, (laughs) basically. Um, But if there is a God, then maybe just maybe there's a bigger reality or a bigger story or a bigger reason for allowing um, evil to self-destruct or to show itself or to do mm-hmm. what it, it's doing in the world for some bigger purpose. Um, and there's also hope for redemption, hope for healing, hope for a, a eternity for a greater reality than what we're experiencing here. And hope for justice. And hope for justice, yeah. real justice. Real justice, yeah. Um, okay, so when we're speaking about truth then um, in the realm of our lived experience, our suffering, mm-hmm. our process of healing, yeah. Um, I find that um, there's this that the, the concept of truth is actually one of the most therapeutically significant interventions that I've ever found. Mm-hmm. And here's there's lots of reasons. So I'm going to just speak to this for a moment. I think this is valuable. Um, one of them is the power of telling just telling the truth in counseling um, to be is the only way to be really seen. Right. If we're hiding something, we're not actually being seen or known fully. Um, our deepest yearning is to be both known and loved, fully known and fully loved. So we can't be totally known unless we're telling all the truth. Mm, yeah, that's good. Um, and so to be known and not loved is like our worst nightmare, right? To be loved and not known is hollow and isn't actually love. Mm, yeah. Um, so these two together is what creates healing. And I, you know, ideally, we want this as children. We want to be totally known and totally loved. But most of us didn't really get that. So when telling the truth um, and actually feeling our grief and pain honestly and bravely, and it is brave to feel pain, um, without feeling it, we cannot actually heal. Um, It's like cleaning out a wound so it can heal properly. Um, The cleaning out part really hurts, but it's absolutely necessary. Um, We have to be truthful about it. Um, We've all heard the phrase, the truth shall set you free. Um, this is also true in mental health as well as in a spiritual sense. Yeah. Um, but who's truth, right? Mm-hmm. So Jesus actually said to the Jews, um, who had believed him, he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Um, and he's also speaking himself of himself as the truth, mm-hmm. as in the, a person is yeah. the truth, not an ideology. So, um, in a counseling mental health setting, how do we identify the lies that we've been living by? Because mm-hmm. most of us have been living by lies. Yeah. Um, most of them are embedded in us from early life experiences that we, um, where we didn't get what we needed mm-hmm. in some capacity because everybody's flawed as all parents are, as we know. Um, like, uh, you know, we didn't get messages we needed, i.e. the truth, right? Um, we needed messages that nourish our souls and minds and hearts, Um, And these are registered in us as traumas, which shape our actual brains and our perceptions of ourselves in the world. 
um, which then these beliefs about ourselves in the world dictate how we behave, who we are in relationships, how we solve or don't solve conflict, whether we take accountability for our actions or not, whether or not we will be more prone to self-medicating with substances, alcoholism, all those things, right? So in therapy, we actually work really hard to identify, name, and call out these lies for what they actually are and whose they are, yeah. who they belong to, nice. right? Yeah. Not our own. Um, and then we seek to find the truth, like we are innately valuable, worthy, lovable, safe, able to overcome challenges, all these wonderful truths. So if we can bring these truths to our young selves inside of us that were traumatized by not getting these messages, and we meet those deepest needs, then healing can actually start to occur and people start to feel free from what they often describe as a prison in their own minds. Um, but how do we know that these are actually truths? So mm -hmm. here we are getting down to worldview now. Yeah. Um, for some people, it's just enough to just know. They just know, you know, or at least they really hope in their gut that these are truth. Like I'm, I'm innately lovable and all those things. Mm -hmm. um, even if they struggle to believe them. Um, but for others, they really need to know that there is a grounding for these truths in order to actually begin to believe them. Um, so there's, they need an origin uh, of them that is actually trustworthy because their negative or limiting beliefs about themselves are such that they will actually hold on to the lies as familiar and protective comfort that's yep. comforting yep. right even if it sucks yep. you know i call this stable misery mm. um until confronted with undeniable truth and then they can make the conscious choice to replace the lies over and over and over again until mm. their brains actually develop new wire they yeah. rewire and have new neural pathways um just like ruts in a well-worn road if we've been leave been believing lies about ourselves for our entire lives it takes a lot to reroute and make a new road in the jungle so to speak yeah. um hence so you know here we are getting into the spiritual realm um but there's this power in the gospel um and and here is the evidence for it right mm -hmm. so i spent years focusing on discovering um the historicity and reliability of the gospels in order to be able to start to even believe the truth there yeah. I needed to know that it was actually something worth paying attention to yeah. from like an intellectual standpoint. Yeah. Um, so here's a couple of quotes from scripture that I think um, actually speak to what we actually do in counseling. So listen to this. This is like long before cognitive behavioral therapy, right? <laughs> Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing in, into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So that's the King James. I'm going to read that in the ESV. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Mm. And so Christ as actually truth, like yeah. the person of truth. So what this actually is, I mean, in CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, we're literally taking our thoughts captive and looking at them and measuring them against truth. Amazing. That's literally what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and here, you know, Paul is actually describing the original CBT, but, but holding it up, taking it captive to obey Christ. And obeying Christ means affirming, saying yes to what he's saying is truth, which is that 
We are innately lovable. Mm-hmm. We were made in the image of God. He yeah. died for us out of love to, to bring us back into communion with God, yeah. right? This is self-sacrificial love, which I think most people would be able to identify as the height of love. Yeah. And that we, in bearing the image of God himself as part of creation, that that gives us a, a very a special significance, a special, like a dignity amongst all the other created order, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, and looking at ourselves through the lens of that we were created in the image of God um, and that he loves, it says we love because God first loved us, mm-hmm. right? So we love um, out of an overflow of this original outpouring of love towards us. Yeah. He sees us, you know, as his children. I mean, I think the closest we come in this world to that kind of love is how we love our children. Yeah. Most people would say like, yeah, I would die for my kids in a moment, but they probably wouldn't do that for anyone else. Yeah. So we can feel a little taste of that kind of love. And most people can say, Yes, my baby is innately worthy of love. My baby is innately lovable, not because of anything that baby has ever done, yeah. right? Yeah. Or proved or achieved Performance, or performed yeah. Yeah, yeah, or worked towards. It's just because they are mine. Yeah, yeah. And, and well, an interesting thing for me is that while we're, and this is just sort of relating to what I talked about just a little bit earlier, is that so... The, even the spiritual, especially like in, in mental health, like what you're saying, where there are a lot of people who get to what we would say probably as like the end of themselves, realizing that their own capacity for self-healing and um, for all of that, there, there's an end, like you described too, where there's, um, we can't go above, the water can't go above its source. Mm-hmm. If we are all and we are not um, self-existent or what, how, did, how does Nancy Piercy say it? Like the, the self-existent source, the self-existent source. We mm-hmm. didn't create ourselves. Um, once we get to the end of our own sourcing for our own self-healing and everything, that there are many people who at that point recognize the need for something beyond themselves. And so you're tapping into the spiritual need that a lot of people end up developing or sensing within themselves um, and that comes in a variety of forms, but back to what I had originally said that the, this is where truth bears down. And so if we are people, for example, like just as a cultural, um, blanket statement, if we are people who maintain the cultural worldview that is coming down from the, the top down, which is, you know, Darwin, Darwinian evolution, just to be super clear, there's no space in that worldview for this. There is no space for a God. There's no space for, um, there's no logical conclusion of that there is any realm of spiritual, um, well, certainly no choice in spiritual matters or need for spiritual matters. Mm -hmm. Um, Because in this realm, there's only matter, there's only body, so atoms, and then there's no spirit. Mm -hmm. And so that is, this is one of those tricky implications of the worldview because if the worldview breaks down and we it turns out we can't actually live within that that we you get to a point where you realize I do actually need something beyond matter I need something more I need a truth that's outside of myself I've exhausted everything within myself Mm -hmm. I need something beyond myself at that point that worldview doesn't hold up to reality to our actually lived experience and that's that testability that um Mm -hmm. the experiential test that nancy piercy refers to that 
does this actually hold up in the grit and grime of real life? Right. When someone, when you encounter someone in your in your clinic and they are in this deep, deep suffering, yeah. it is of no use to say, you know, something like you are enough. You well, you are enough. But <laughs> even even that though, there's even yeah. no basis for that in Darwinian right. evolution. Even if you said, you know, let let's get down to the truth here. You are a product of nothing more than time and chance. And you are an accident. You're an accident. We're Mm going to hope for the best because I'm not being crass even in saying that. I'm saying those are real real. implications of that worldview. So then that's, I mean, that's, I think what we're getting at is this is where the grit and grime of real life has to interface with our worldview. And so I'll say here that in therapy, I have just sort of labeled this point as the wall. Mm. So it feels like a great big brick wall Mm. that erects itself in the middle of the therapeutic process for, I would say, 99% of the clients that I see. Where as we dig down to the the very core source of pain, it usually has to do with um, not knowing where their worth comes from. Mm. Yeah. Because they can see that everything in this world is temporary yeah. and is not steady. There is no real actual anchor mm-hmm. um, for this notion of like, oh, I'm innately lovable or I'm innately worthy, which it's also interesting to me that we all actually need that mm. Yeah, in the first common. place, yeah. that, that, that yeah. we need that to yeah. feel okay in the world. Yeah. Um, and so at that point is where we have to bring up the metaphysical. We have to bring up the spiritual question. We have to bring up belief systems and worldviews, which just speaks to how important this stuff actually is for our health, for our relationships, um, for our ability to just function and be okay in the world. And, um, and, you know, I want to say here that uh, it's, how do I put this? I mean, I don't, I don't know how deep I want to go into theology here, but um, just as a side note, slash not so much of a side, side note, um, <laughs> you know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's this original lie that's spoken of there um, that basically is the serpent saying, you know, questioning God's word and saying, um, you can be like God, right? Mm-hmm. The, basically saying that happiness can, can be found in the self, that you mm-hmm. can do it your way. Um, and this is sort of pointing to this breakdown of the secular worldview, which is where we're going to go next to really give it its due, um, attention and really see why it's so attractive too. And why, um, so, you know, it's something that really catches our attention as a society. And, um, we don't want to like bash these things because we, we see how they're actually valuable in a lot of ways. Yeah. There is a lot of good. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say most worldviews have like a lot of truth in them. Right. Mm -hmm. But it speaks to this thing that it says we have everything we need. I mean, look at the, the size of the self-help industry. Um, but we also remain feeling empty. Um, and so if the self can save the self, there's nowhere to go. Yeah. Um, and I just find that on a daily basis in therapy that the people, and this is just objective, right? So this is from my experience objectively, the people who have this deeper faith, who have this spiritual understanding of something greater than themselves, they get low. Life is hard. This world is quite broken. And I think everybody would agree to that, but, and they get quite low, but they're low is eons away from the low that I see happen for the people without that. Mm. 
Interesting. Um, there is there is still hope that remains, whereas without it, there is no hope, and there's nowhere to find it. Yeah. And they look hard. We look hard. Yeah. For a source of anchoring of one's worth, mm. and I I have yet to actually really find it. And even even if there's so like you mentioned the self help, it's it's a movement, but also uh, I mean millions and millions of dollars industry. Yeah. But even if you tap into that side of it, it's still um, this grasping always because we still, it's never enough. You still need the next thing to self-heal. You still need the next thing to mm-hmm. self-heal. You still need and need and need and need. And it's like there's there's no end to that yeah. because you're still only tapping within the reservoir that is yourself instead of outside of the self. Right. Yeah. 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 So I think... I mean, is there anything else we want to say here? I think that maybe that's a good pausing point. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so next up will be really, yeah, I think taking a little bit deeper. I know this might have felt sort of like a deep dive, but specifically (laughs) next time, um, it'll be assessing from some of the same perspective, though, secularism as sort of the, the... the mood and the air we breathe in, in the West in particular, and that, um, and just what is really beautiful and good about that. And then also where we see some gaps and, um, and so anyway, so it'll just be a little bit deeper in that particular topic. Yeah. Next episode. There's this, um, little story that I once heard that was, there's these fish swimming and they're the, these two young fish and they swim by this old guy fish. And he mm-hmm. says, how's the water today? And as they pass by, one of the young fish says to the other one, what's water? Mm, They don't Um, even notice. They don't even notice. So I just, we want to identify some water. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. Have a great day. Mm Mm-hmm.